Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Today we're here to talk with Lila Rose, who I've been looking forward to having on for a long time because she's the founder and president of Live Action, is one of the most outspoken and really recognizable pro-life leaders today, and has a fantastic new book out we want to commend to all of our listeners called Fighting for Life. Lila, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So let's start kind of at the beginning. How did you first even get started having your heart just kind of broken for the unborn? Well, I, I'm from a big family. I'm one of eight kids. So I have five younger brothers and sisters. And already that sets you up for appreciating babies. I mean, or, or I guess there was a lot of chaos involved too in that kind of an upbringing. But there were ultrasound pictures on the fridge growing up. And my parents were really faith-filled people, um, grew up in Silicon Valley, Northern California. And so they weren't pro-life activists in the sense of, you know, praying outside abortion clinics or anything like that. But they were very passionate about life and God and service. And so that really set the stage for me to, as a naturally empathetic and curious little girl, for me to be interested in causes. And for me, my first moment of heartbreak about abortion, which would really be a catalyst for me starting live action as a teenager, was when I found a book called A Handbook on Abortion And I was really curious. I started reading it. It It's a history book about abortion and its legality, but it had an insert with images in it. And these photos, there were some of embryonic development, so you could see the humanity of the baby. But there was an image that I'll never forget, which was the image of a child and maybe 10 weeks old. And you can see at 10 weeks, arms, legs, a little face, um, first trimester. And this little child had been torn apart into pieces by a powerful first trimester suction abortion, which is the most prevalent abortion in America today. And I just looked at this child, I could see the humanity and I was just cut to the heart. I I thought, you know, how can we permit this? How can this be legal? How can this be accepted? And I wanted to learn more. I started this big journey of learning more and ultimately it would inspire me to start live action. So, Lila, let, let's let's stay with the sort of at the beginning. Um, what tell us a little bit about your your very first effort that you engaged in to help protect the unborn, and then maybe a little bit about how your approach is different today. Well, there were lots of experimental things I tried as a teen to get involved in the movement. One of them was to just pray outside an abortion clinic for the first time. I was fourteen got permission from my parents, the local pregnancy center that my grandmother had volunteered at for over, I think, two decades at that point. Uh, There were counselors associated with it or people that knew people. And so I knew of a group of peace-filled Christians who would pray outside that abortion clinic. And so I show up with some friends and it changed me profoundly to be on a sidewalk while the rest of the world was busy doing its thing. There's a you know daycare across the street, a YMCA. It's in a residential area. And there's this big brick building with these uh, frosted over windows. And they killed babies up till 24 weeks in that building, six months old. Gosh. Children that technically could survive outside the womb with medical care. And 
I just stood there praying to God on the sidewalk and I felt this profound helplessness because I saw women going in, girls, young girls, you know, some visibly pregnant. I saw tears and stressed faces. And it was just like, how could we allow this? And and it seemed like the world didn't care. I had this feeling that um, people were not, had not wakened, had not become awake to this crisis. And so leaving that day, you know, I, I felt very compelled. People need education. They just need to know this is happening. I mean, especially Christians. And so I started by um, begging my youth pastor at the time to to let me and some friends or, you know, to him do it, just give a presentation with facts about abortion and the pro-life case, you know, the case for life, because I was convicted. I looked at the statistics, the abortion rate amongst self-professed evangelicals, Catholics is nearly identical to the abortion rate in the secular world. And I just thought, how can we as the church not talk about this issue and let this just be the silent slaughter in our own communities? Uh, so that would the, the start of live action was education. It was very church focused. We do some of that today, of course, but now we've become this global news and media and education organization. So it's a much larger audience. But I still have that heart that I had as a teen for the church needs to wake up and some are, and it's exciting to see that, but there are many more that need to stand up. I believe people who profess the name of Christ that, you know, this is our, this is the biblical issue of the day. I mean, the proportion of the crime, the fact that there's 2363 to over 2,300 abortions daily, you know, there's other causes that Christians should care about, but proportionally speaking, this is the leading cause of death hmm. and it's legal. And so you know, I, I felt strongly at the time and, and more even to this day, and I know it's something you care about as well. Christians need to take responsibility and rise up. So Lila, tell us, just be a little bit more specific about how your faith guides your pro-life work. Sure. And it's been a journey. I mean, we're all, I think, on a journey of faith. And for me, I, I had a born-again experience, you could say, as a as a kid, so I, I, my parents are a Christian. We went to church every Sunday. So I had this strong sense, you know, Jesus is God. He loves me. He died for me. I want to follow him. I want to accept the gift of his, that he offers me. As a teen, I was very pro-life. I started live action, but I actually struggled with my faith because I had, you know, other issues going on in my life. I struggled with depression. I had some disordered eating and self-harm. There were some mental health challenges that ran in my family. And I share about this in my book, Fighting for Life. And I, I was trying to understand, you know, how a good God, it's that, you know, perennial question, how is, how a good God can allow evil and suffering. And also on a practical level, even what did it mean to follow God? It's one thing to learn the Bible and go to church on Sundays, but I wanted my life to radically change. I wanted to, I wanted everything in my life to be devoted to him. I wanted to know how to pray, how to understand morality, how to understand how to live. And so I, I started this journey of really investigating, you could say, um, Christianity and in other religions to a degree. And then in college, I would become um, even more profoundly deep in my faith. I actually entered the Catholic Church. I became a daily communicant. I'd go to Mass every day and I transformed my prayer life where it was like everything in my life really hinged around my relationship with God in a way that I had never lived before. I mean, I tried and, you know, there was now I had mentorship and, and a direction to do that. And I think, you know, I would have been pro-life even without my faith in the sense that you can be pro-life and be secular, be, you know, 
an atheist. You can be anything and be pro-life, anti-abortion, anti the killing of innocent human beings. But it's through our faith that, and, and Christ taking on our humanity, God himself taking on our humanity and, and restoring us to wholeness through his sacrifice, that the possibility for healing is offered. I mean, the abortion is so horrific. Um, it's so devastating. And we know that because of this, we know the sacredness of life. And, and Jesus shows us that God shows us that in creating life and creating life in his image. And then we see the possibility for redemption in what Christ has done for us. Because I think so many, I've talked to so many women and men who've had abortions in the past. And I think the, you know, the, the Christian faith has the answer to the trauma and the shame of abortion, because that's such a weight to carry. Once you realize what it is, you, you know, I kill, I helped kill my own child. I mean, it's devastating. And so I think the faith for me has been personally <laughs> helped me, uh, you know, have the courage I need and teach me the lessons I need, the humility I need to grow as a leader. But on the bigger picture for our movement, I think Jesus Christ is the answer to the the wound of abortion in our culture and in so many hearts. I love to hear you say that, and that comes through clearly in your book, just your passion for the unborn, but that you're motivated by your faith. Well, one of the questions that I have is right now everybody's talking about social justice and justice issues applied to the marginalized. We hear it in terms of race. We hear it in terms of the LGBTQ conversation. But the unborn is left out of those who are considered marginalized. And the ironic is they are the most marginalized group. Why do you think that is, culturally speaking? I think there's a number of factors going on. Um, I consider the pro-life cause the greatest human rights issue of our day. Um, There are other important causes, but nothing comes close to the sheer death toll of abortion. Uh, 2,300 children killed. And I think the reason so many in society don't see it as a human rights abuse, they actually see abortion as a societal good, or they just don't think about it at all. They ignore it. It's twofold, I would say, two main reasons. Number one is a political reason. And it's the fact that there's a hundred year old corporation called Planned Parenthood and a lot of their allies, and they've, you know, they have $2 billion in assets, $2 billion in assets. They get a half of a billion a year from taxpayers. Uh, they're the biggest abortion chain, and they have deep relationships at the highest levels of politics, media, the arts, education. They're in our school systems. They are. Uh, they, they basically wrote the platform for the Democratic Party. They even influence and have influenced some Republicans over the years. Thankfully, not as much. Um, they have been incredibly influential in arts and entertainment and news media. They used to give out uh, journalist awards that were accepted by many leading journalists. And their power has taken decades to build and they retain it. So people in media, arts, entertainment, politics, they think being pro-abortion is the way to go because that's just what Planned Parenthood has set the stage for. Um, The other reason is a really cultural one. It's connected to that. But I think the sexual revolution dramatically altered our sense of morality in this country. And that was really mid-20th century where there was this uprooting of the traditional norm of, and the natural norm of marriages between a man and a woman. And you have sexes for children and love, you know, sex is not just about pleasure or what you want to do, you know, if you're a single person pastime or, you know, momentary pleasure, but sex is about building a life with someone else and having kids. And that's how sex is designed. It, it does two things. Sex, it bonds two people together emotionally, physically, and sex and spiritually, and sex can create new life. 
But then with contraception, with the free love movement, with the you know no fault divorce, all of these um, dramatic changes in how we see sex and family, all of a sudden sex was disconnected from love and marriage. And now a lot of people, there was so much more potential for unexpected pregnancy because that that sense of society looking down on, oh no, you should only have sex within marriage, that was totally ripped away. And so now what do you do with people when contraception fails? 50% of the women who have abortions, this is Planned Parenthood's own statistic, their, their research arm's own statistic, 50% of the women who have abortions, the month they got pregnant, they were using contraception. So this whole thing about safe sex, just have safe sex, and then you can have sex with whomever. It's not a big deal. Um, it's a lie. And so what needed to happen to justify that lifestyle, that amorality, that whole sexual revolution and its fruit um, to, to sustain it? You needed abortion. You need a legalized abortion. Otherwise, um, people can't have sex without consequences. Um, and so that, I think, has been a dramatic cultural shift. And look, just, I mean, sex is being sold. I mean, lust has become and sex has become this commodity that's just commonly used everywhere. I mean, on social media, on Instagram and marketing, pornography use has spiked. And the fallout is not just broken relationships and, and broken bodies with STIs and other things like that, but it's the fallout is our children, who all the children being conceived, not out of, not in loving marriages, but being conceived in relationships where they're not wanting kids or they're they're saying I don't I'm not ready for a kid and that's the reason for the abortion rate today. So I think if that if we can shift our mindset on sex and love, which by the way you're not happy. I think most people are not happy with the way things are going with relationships and dating and sex. It's not, you know, it doesn't bring joy to have one night stands. It doesn't bring joy to be with a non-committal boyfriend, you know? <laughs> like we can change our mindset on sex and family and reconnect sex with love and kids then I think we have a chance at really changing the abortion culture. Well, I think it's fair to say that the, the hookup culture doesn't exactly contribute much to human flourishing uh, in the way that you're describing. So, Lila, tell us a little bit about live action. Uh, what does your organization do? How did it get started? Uh, how did you get sort of launched into prominence nationally? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So when I started live action as a teenager, I was doing pro-life presentations at churches and schools with other friends. You said when you were a teenager, exactly how old were you when you started this? So I was 15 when it became officially live action. 14, I was starting to do activism. Just a note to our listeners, how many of you were doing something that productive at (laughs) age 14 or 15? Look, it's the mercy of God. I, I, I could have gotten in a lot more trouble as a teenager uh, without having a cause. And I talk about that in Fighting for Life, just the power of a cause to really focus your life in service of others. So I'm so grateful uh, to God for that inspiration that I had as a, as a kid. Um, but yeah, so I, I was, you know, I started live action. Then I get to college. I went to UCLA and I chose UCLA as this kind of mission field, you know, I actually considered Hillsdale College. Um, I I don't know if I consider Biola, but I have a lot of great friends who went to Biola and a lot of live action team members who um, are Biola alum, several live action team is Biola alum. But I wanted to go to a mission field somewhere where I knew the pro-life message wasn't often shared and I wanted to share it. So I get to UCLA. Then I started and I started a live action chapter. So at that point, live action was building chapters. Then long story short, I get 
involved in investigative reporting. So I was always into news and media. I always wanted to find a way to you know, communicate the truth to others, started an independent magazine, started doing undercover reporting in abortion clinics in Los Angeles, which was, I know sounds unusual, but I just, you know, I was studying the topic. I, I looked at other investigative work that had been done by activists. I looked at the fact that no reporting was being done on abortion clinics and that launched a more national platform for live action because the reports that I was doing became national stories. And part of the reason for that was Planned Parenthood threatened to sue me as a college student. And there was a whole uh, media around that. And then social media was just starting at the time. And so we started to utilize those platforms and we started and then I launched Live Action News, a website. And soon, soon enough, we were we, we had become a leading voice in media um, exposing the abortion industry. And then as we built that out, I saw increasingly the opportunity to just do educational campaigns. So exposing what abortion was, um, showing embryonic development, providing the pro-life case, the pro-life apologetics case for life, because we were building this national branded following. We had millions of followers. There were a lot of people tuning in and getting excited about joining the pro-life movement. So we started to just build out all of this other educational content and then opportunities for political activation, you know, defund Planned Parenthood, fight for total abortion abolition. And so then we ended up partnering with other national groups and building these campaigns. And now <laughs> we are the uh, global leader for education in the pro-life movement. We're reaching about 15 million people weekly. And I really credit the grace of God <laughs> and a lot of people along the way, you know, pitching in, believing in the vision. Um, and in some ways, we're just getting started because the, the big, hairy, audacious goal, the big vision here is to end abortion legally, culturally, and to build a culture of life. And that's about human flourishing. I mean, you, you mentioned that phrase earlier. Um, I believe that's what God wants for us, Christians and all people. And society and our legal system should be set up to protect and defend human liberties and human, human dignity for the sake of human flourishing. And that is the end game for live action. But a core step to get there is to abolish abortion, because that's the greatest threat globally to human flourishing. So, Lila, let's talk a little bit more about some of the undercover work that you did. Uh, who, who are some of the characters that you posed as uh, in some of this undercover work? Sure. So I, I've done different reports myself personally, and then I've trained teams and we developed teams to do different kinds of reporting. Some of the first investigative reporting I did was on sexual abuse cover-up at abortion clinics because that's a huge problem. I mean, a lot of abusers rely on abortion to uh, keep abusing their victims because they get them pregnant and they're these young girls um, and they want to, you know, the pregnancy is kind of evidence of their crime. And so I started going undercover into abortion clinics as an underage girl, as young as 13 years old. Um, I ended up having to bleach my hair blonde. I'm a brunette um, and wore glasses and, you know, ripped up jeans, you know, kind of a teeny bopper type outfit um, because they had my photo up in some of the abortion clinics wow. of myself as a brunette. <laughs> so I, I had to just, you know, wear the disguise. So I I did that a fair amount, exposed a lot of abortion clinics um, wanting to cover up sexual abuse. So I'd say I'm 13. My boyfriend's 31. You know, this is statutory rape. They're required by law to report it. And the Planned Parenthood worker would laugh or she they would 
tell me how I could have the boyfriend or this abuser take me to another state for a secret abortion. I mean, just crazy, um, crazy stuff. And it's because the abortion mentality is abortion at all costs, at any cost. I mean, they don't see a woman in her humanity or a girl in her humanity and think about what's actually best for her. They think about, I'm going to close an abortion sale because they think that actually is what serves women. So that was that was most of my a lot of my investigative reporting in the beginning. Since then, you know, I'm too recognizable. I'm getting a little old for the 13 year old um, approach, you know, and I've got we've got a lot of other reports we do. And those include showing sex selective abortion at, a, at abortion clinics. It shows race. We, we've exposed racism, medical misinformation, um, even the aiding and abetting of sex trafficking, um, you know, David Delighton worked with me for years. He went on to expose uh, Planned Parenthood selling baby body parts. Uh, so there's just been a lot of other reports that have been done since those early um, days of me me going undercover. Now, you obviously, obviously expected some pushback when you did this. But can you talk a little bit about from the government, from politicians, that the powers that be, how they responded and what you guys have done back in response of course. So over the years, I've had my share of death threats and um, just brutal, different kinds of brutal threats. I mean, now I have a young family, so it's kind of the threats are changing threats against my family and the political attacks. I mean, Planned Parenthood did threaten to sue me. Since then, they've kind of left us alone. We've had different lawsuit threats over the years, but they've sort of left us alone because I think they realize at least that approach backfired on them. Um, it made them look, uh, it, it was not good for from a publicity standpoint for them to be suing this young woman who was showing sexual abuse cover up at their clinics. Um, I think the biggest brunt of political attacks has actually been endured by my friend David Delighton and Sandra Merritt. Hmm. Um, she's a, a grandmother, a friend of mine, a really amazing person. And David, um, you may have heard of him. He's yeah. done some incredible work exposing bot- Planned Parenthood's body parts. He did some of that work in California. And unfortunately, our leadership in California is so politically corrupt and they're so in the bag for the abortion industry. I mean, they are completely funded, most politicians in our state, by Planned Parenthood. And so Kamala Harris was the attorney general when and she was actually being funded by Planned Parenthood for her then Senate Senate campaign before she became VP. She was Senate senator. And before that, she was attorney general of California. And that was the time when um, we were publicizing David's videos, exposing the body parts sale at Planned Parenthood facilities, just horrific stuff. And uh, Kamala Harris, um, at the behest of Planned Parenthood, went and um, ultimately um, levied criminal charges against, began criminal proceedings against David and Sandra for their investigative reporting, which is just mind boggling because no reporter has been uh, prosecuted by the state of California for undercover journalism. Undercover journalism happens in California regularly. You know, ABC, local ABC affiliates, you know, looking at chiropractors offices with dishonest practices or medical marijuana factories. I mean, so many investigative reports with undercover elements. But when you go undercover in an abortion clinic, then the state and you and Planned Parenthood, you know, has a has the right strings to pull. It can lead to criminal proceedings. So that's what my two of my friends are experiencing. Um, besides that, you know, politically, 
We have a steep hill to climb at the federal level right now. The the Biden administration is very pro-abortion. Kamala Harris, of course, is now vice president of the whole country. And they have a lot of influence over the Justice Department, of course. And so we're very concerned for our freedom of speech and and the opportunity to act as uh, pro-life activists right now uh, and what the Biden administration could do to retaliate because they did that in California when Kamala Kamala Harris was attorney general. But their their policies are the most concerning. I mean, the most radical abortion policies, taxpayer funding on abortion through birth is what they're trying to uh, pass. And so it's all the more important that we fight this battle at the cultural level, in our churches, education, and, you know, we continue to provide care and support to women and families, and that we fight the battles we can win at the state level. And I am happy to say that um, there has been unprecedented pro-life legislation passed at the state level in the last two years. And that's continuing, that trend's continuing. So there are good things happening, but there are very high stakes and the political climate is very, I think, vicious, particularly at the federal level right now. So, Lila, those, those describe some of the things that encourage you about the pro-life movement, some of the laws mm-hmm. that are being passed. What what else do you find out there that's encouraging to you about the, the, the advocacy for the unborn today? I see a lot of people waking up and even changing their minds on that's a big focus of live actions work and our work is how do we persuade people? How do we get them facts that they otherwise wouldn't have? Um, I see some people in the in the Christian community, churches that are becoming more active and outspoken. Uh, there's more of, I think, a sense of urgency. I think that's the, the good response to the extremism of the Biden administration and the, the national politics. Um, you know, every time a life is saved and we get emails or messages regularly saying, you know, I saw your video and I'm now I'm not having my abortion and, you know, I've chosen life. And that right there, you know, one life being saved because of some work that you helped do. And obviously the the woman, the mother is the one who's the hero choosing life, but that you could assist her in that choice. Um, I mean, it's all worth it. (laughs) Think of what, what is one life worth? What's a child's life worth? Is that child's life worth 10 years of your activism? 100%, your whole life of activism. I mean, Jesus Jesus sets that example. He gave his entire life for each of us. Um, so that's really the biggest hope is, you know, what can one life do? That one child who's saved, God can do anything with one life. God can do anything with your life. So I think we're, I think we're at a turning point. Um, I think that if we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us and to embolden us right now to speak, to act, to do on behalf of the most vulnerable, we can end abortion. We can change the trajectory of our country. The politics do follow the culture. Um, you know, the, the politics keep yo-yoing extremes one side to the next. But if the culture shifts strongly in one direction, it will change politics. So I'm very, very hopeful. And it's because, you know, Christ, it's because of, I can see what God can do. Um, But it it takes us to act. And that's why I'm so thrilled. You know, I know you're passionate about this. And many of the listeners are passionate, are becoming more passionate. And I think we need to let ourselves be passionate. You know, Jesus burned, um, you know, the, the, the hours and days before his death and crucifixion, his passion, 
He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's cursing the fig tree for its fruitlessness. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, weeping, you know, sweating blood because of his agony. But the agony, that heartache he was experiencing was for the injustice and the sins of mankind, but also because he saw what's possible. He knew the resurrection was coming and what's possible for healing and salvation. And, and, and I think we need to let ourselves in a way be tormented. If the letter cells just be broken open, let ourselves get angry over this. Um, don't live in just, you know, your normalcy and your safety and your, your bubble. Like let yourself really feel the crisis um, and then be moved to, to action by that. If we do that, I think we can change, change the course of our country. Lila, I absolutely love your passion. It comes through your Twitter feed. It comes through in your book and obviously in your speaking. In some ways, what you just said is where we should end. But there's just a question I have to ask you that in some ways, the elephant in the room, that we're not going to get rid of abortion the way you're describing without addressing this. Could you talk about briefly, just because we're coming towards the end, what is the link between pornography and abortion? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, Pornography, which is just an epidemic, the porn use increases each year. Child pornography use is increasing each year. It's, it's horrific. You look into that. And it. I think it comes down to objectifying others. When we objectify others for our own satiation, um, our own selfish pursuits, uh, is it that surprising that we might objectify a, a, a pregnancy, you know, a preborn child to the point wow. of seeing them as not human, less than human. Pornography treats people as subhuman. It reduces the person to an image for your pleasure to consume. And abortion sees the child as subhuman. It reduces a pregnancy and that precious life to a mistake or an inconvenience that can be just discarded. So it, it, it's a it's a radical change and renewal on sex, but that has to be taught, you know, that has to be talked about from young ages. It needs to be part of our language as Christians and it needs to be modeled. It needs to be modeled in how we treat each other, how we treat our spouses, how we don't divorce. I mean, there's real implications for Christians here. It's not just enough to say, oh, porn is bad. Abortion is bad. It has to change how we live. And that can be hard to have those hard conversations in the church. Lila, that connection you made is so important because the heart of any Christian ethic is that people, no matter their race, their age, their sex, in the womb or out of the womb, are made in God's image and have infinite infinite dignity, value, and worth. What pornography does is turn somebody into an object that you use, and it's the same spirit within abortion. So having our listeners hear that and take that to heart I think it's a very, very powerful truth, and I so appreciate you speaking boldly on this and the other issues. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Lila. Uh, I want to encourage our listeners to follow you on Twitter. Uh, just search Lila Rose, and you'll come up on Twitter, and you're just you're a fireball in the best sense. You give resources, give encouragement. Uh, I follow you regularly, and also I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of your book, Fighting for Life. Both Scott and I read it, and we were chatting before how it's insightful, it's timely. It's kind of this call to action telling people, hey, you can do it no matter where you're at. You can make a difference for the unborn. I think that's exactly what we need right now. So thanks again so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically conversations on faith and culture. 
The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We offer programs in Southern California and fully online now, including our new, this is just new fully online, we've had the program for years, a Master's in Christian Apologetics, which I teach in. If you just go to biola.edu slash Talbot, you can learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, and please consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.